This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we tell stories about everything here on this show, from the arts to sports and from business to history and everything in between, including your stories. Send them to OurAmericanStories.com. There's actually a Your Story icon on our navigator bar at OurAmericanStories.com. Just click it, and we have a nice form that's easy to fill out with a little summary of your story, and we'll get right back to you. There are favorite stories, and proof of that is our next story by Paul in Minneapolis, Minnesota, who listens out of our great affiliate, WCCO 830. Let's take a listen to Paul's story, Wilbur and the Empty Nester. I met Wilbur in the senior home because I was bored. Like a lot of 50-something guys my age, I'm a man in transition. The kids have grown up and moved out. It's just the two of us again, Cindy and I. I'm missing the rush of activity that used to clog our house and hustle us on to the fields, the ice rinks, and the gymnasiums that our kids and all their teammates used to inhabit. There must be something more I can do, I heard myself saying. I wanted to be more involved, more engaging, more invested. Volunteering seemed like the right fit for me. So one day, I drove to the senior home near my home in Shakopee, Minnesota. There was nothing formal about it. The staff allowed me to come once or twice a week. I didn't visit the residents in their rooms, but I hung out in the activity room and the cafeteria. I tried to meet some other lonely people. In other words, people like me, who needed new activities and new friends. Some were easy, some were tough. Wilbur was one of the hard ones. He was 89 years old back then. His wife had died 26 years earlier. In his prime, Old Wilbur was a hard-working farmer on a farm near New Ulm, Minnesota, a small town southwest of Prior Lake. But that was then. Based on what he has told me, he lost the farm and all his money, and that was that. He didn't have a dime to his name. The government is paying for my stay at the senior home, he told me. In a way, I could feel his pain. So I just tried to make him laugh. That was tough duty. The senior home staff told me he was lonely. That was obvious. The activity staff said Wilbur had a reputation for being a bit on the grumpy side. Well, maybe more than a bit. But he warmed up to me as I sat and listened. At first, I had tried recruiting him to bingo night because I started helping with bingo on Monday nights. I was calling bingo some nights and playing games or visiting on the others. What do you think, Wilbur? Do you want to try bingo? But he told me no. He was never playing bingo again. When I asked him why, he said because he tried and he was yelled at and the players were mean to him. Oh, I said. I suspected people yelling and being mean might not be entirely accurate, but that was before my time as the bingo caller. I told him, don't worry Wilbur, we'll have fun. I'll make sure you have a good time. He said, no thanks. That made me kind of mad. Being the stubborn German Catholic that I am, I took his rejection as a challenge. I was determined to get Wilbur to our weekly Monday night bingo game. Bingo is at 7 o'clock sharp. The residents have dinner in their cafeteria at 6 o'clock, so I started showing up at 6.30, taking advantage of a captive audience, and I went to work on Wilbur. Each week, I asked him to join us. Each week, I kept getting turned down. Finally, one evening, my annoyance got the best of him. He said he would come and try just to get me off his back. I made sure he had a great time. I gave him some special attention, teasing him in a friendly way. 
I don't remember whether he actually won a game that night, but I do remember he told me he had fun. He said he would come again the next week. That was a big time victory, and I relished it. Wilbur was now coming every week, no begging needed. And he enjoyed it so much that he stayed after bingo when the room cleared out and just Wilbur and I remained. That gave us the opportunity to visit together before he went to his room for the night. We took time to talk about not just how the weather was, but also about how his day went, how his week was going, what life was like on the farm and how he missed all the hard work. I noticed how my regular visits and just listening to his stories made all the difference. The residents had bingo three times a week, but Wilbur would only come the night I'm calling. It sure would be nice to go to a drive to visit the old homestead, Wilbur said, but I wondered if such a trip would be too much. So I focused on Assisted Living Week, the homecoming promo for lonely seniors. Assisted Living Week gave them a chance to do something special. It was a big deal. Games, special events, and an excuse to dress up. Every day there was a different theme, different things to wear. One day was dress up, one was a certain color, and after that was sports day. The residents were each to wear a sports themed shirt. Wilbur was not participating in these events, but with a nudge from a friendly staff member, I decided I'd take a chance. The night prior to sports day, a staff member texted me to see if I could bring a colorful jersey for Wilbur to wear, thinking that he might wear it if it came from me, his new friend, so I gave him Montana Grizzlies shirt a try. I walked into the room, showed him the football jersey, and told him he could wear it tomorrow for sports day. But Wilbur said no, he was not going to participate. As I left for the night, I held out the Grizzlies jersey one more time, and wouldn't you know, he grumpily took it. But, he said as I left, I'm not going to wear it. But I knew better. I prayed that night for a minor miracle, and sure enough, God found a way to get Wilbur into that shirt. The next day, he wore the silver and maroon of the University of Montana Grizzlies, and I smiled. Last week, Wilbur was not at Bingo Monday night. The staff member could not say why, but I asked if it would be okay for me to go to his room and say hello. She said, sure. So I did something I had never done before. I went to visit Wilbur in his room. That's a big step for some people. The activity room in the cafeteria, that's neutral territory. Our room is pretty private, but I wanted to find him, so I walked through the senior home hallway to find him, and what do you know, there he was. Hey Wilbur, I said. I came to your room because I couldn't find you. I was concerned because you weren't at bingo last Monday. Yep, he said. I was in the hospital for four days. I was having trouble breathing. He told me how he had to dial 911, how an ambulance came and took him to emergency. He said they told him he almost died. I was relieved he was okay, and I told him he better not scare me like that again. And you've been listening to Paul, the empty nester, telling the story of Wilbur, his friend in an assisted living center. Paul Lonely, Wilbur Lonely, two lonely guys trying to pass the time, be companions in the journey of life. And again, Paul listens to our American stories on our great affiliate, WCCO 830. And we love that the station took a chance on us and so many of the great stations across this country took a chance on a show that was positive and good and beautiful. Um, And thank you to all the affiliates who carry us. We are eternally grateful. Now let's return to Paul and Wilbur's story. For an 89-year-old man, he was looking pretty good. He smiled and relaxed. 
We visited for a while in his, in his room, and we were both more comfortable than we thought. Wilbur showed me pictures he had around his room. Pictures of a young Wilbur and his wife, of his kids and grandkids. He was a strong young father, and his wife was beautiful. They had three children, great-looking kids. We had a wonderful talk. He showed me all the gadgets he got from the hospital, a machine he had blown to see how high he could make it go, proudly telling me he got up to 26 one time. When I left, he said he was very glad that I came, that he missed me on Monday. He said he's glad I come to see him because his own kids and grandkids don't. Our relationship is getting stronger, and now I've decided bingo's not enough for the two of us. I'm going to make sure and go visit Wilbur one or two other nights a week as well. A few months later, I had another twist to my relationship with Wilbur. I went to visit him, and once again he was not at the dinner table. I found out he had fallen the day before and was in the hospital, so I went to the hospital to see him. I hurt my shoulder, he said, but I didn't break it. I told him I was glad it wasn't broken. He said he fell trying to get up from the lunch table. I couldn't press the call button around my neck, he said, because I was flat on my belly and I couldn't move my arm. I was scared. Luckily, there were still two others in the room, so they pushed their buttons and he got the help he needed. We sat and talked for a long time that day there in the hospital room. We were comfortable together. We had moved from a cafeteria relationship to a visit in your room relationship, and now we were advancing up to a hospital visit relationship. While with him that day, the first nurse who came in said to me, I'm so glad you came. Wilbur has been hoping all day to have a visitor. The next nurse asked if I was a relative, and I said, no, just a friend. And Wilbur shouted out, a real good friend. It might have been one of the nicest compliments I had heard in a long time. When he said it, I was speechless. I didn't know Wilbur had it in him. When someone calls you a friend, that's one thing. But when Wilbur, who wouldn't come to bingo, who wouldn't take the sports jersey, who used to be just a little bit grumpy, shouts to one of the nurses and calls me a real good friend, well, that's about as good as it gets. It's a memory and a feeling I will never forget. It almost brought tears to my eyes. Almost, I said. Remember, I'm a stubborn German Catholic. We talked more that day. Without trying to pry too much, I learned that his daughter did come to visit him the first night, but he wished his two sons would show up. He said he called his boys, but they can't afford to come see him right then. I asked if they lived out of town. He said no, in a town about 50 miles away. To be fair, you're never quite sure why someone doesn't visit. There's probably more to the story. Maybe he was a little grumpy once too often, or maybe there's a dysfunction one way or the other. I decided I couldn't be sure of the real reason Wilbur's children stayed away, but that was not my business. My role was to love him. And I could be sure of this. Wilbur was lonely, and whenever I came, he was glad I came to see him, and I was glad I was there too. It made me wonder sometimes, who was more looking forward to our nighttime visits, me or Wilbur? And you know what? I think it was probably a draw. For me, Monday nights became the best night of my week, and I have a suspicion that my friend Wilbur would say the same. One day recently, when I came, I found that Wilbur was really bummed out. He was moving to the long-term side of the senior home the next day. You see, there's an assisted living side where you have an apartment and maintain some independence, and there is a side that's more like a hospital when you need more care and you can't be on your own anymore. 
It's always traumatic for the residents when they realize they can no longer be on their own and they have to move to the other side. I have to move, said Wilbur. That's going to be hard, I replied. I told him I'd come after work tomorrow and help him move some of his belongings to his new room if he wanted to do that. Not yet, he said. Let's wait. Wilbur was holding out hope. Maybe it wouldn't be permanent. Maybe the staff would let him back to assisted living. I don't know if that was realistic, but I knew I could be realistic enough to come back that night and see him and help him get through. Our visit that evening went well. We talked about life's ups and downs, twists and turns, and what it feels like to go from assisted living to long-term care. Not only did we talk about Wilbur's situation, but also about my life and my struggles. I'm a reserved person. I normally keep my thoughts and feelings to myself. Yet, for some reason that evening, it felt appropriate and even comforting to open up to my friend Wilbur. We're in this together, I said. I think these are the kinds of discussions close friends have, yet somehow this was new territory for me, and Wilbur was good to talk to. After visiting Wilbur on my way back to my car, I walked back through the senior home and saw my other good friend at the senior home, Natalia. She was out of her room playing solitaire, so I decided to say hello. Natalia is 98 years old, and she has told me she's going to make it to 100. She loves to play dominoes and taught me the game too. It's a lot of fun. Did you ever play? Natalia got so inspired thinking about it, she said, wait. She put down her cards and had me go to her room and grab the dominoes so we could play a few games right then and there. And we had a great time. Even though Natalia is on the long-term side of the home, I go to pick her up on bingo night in the assisted living area. There have been a couple of occasions where another volunteer has gone to get her for bingo and she has said something to the effect that, Paul usually does this, I'll wait for him. Sure enough, the volunteer left her and told me that Natalia was waiting. She always smiled when I came to get her, and that day, I smiled too. One day, I received news from one of the staff that Wilbur had taken a turn for the worse, and I should stop in to see him if I was able to. So, I went to visit Wilbur in his room right away. He was lying in his bed, comfortable but unconscious. Yes, Wilbur was dying. The grumpy man who had become my friend the one who started to love Bingo, the one who was in this together with me, a lonely man making a friend of a guy who used to be a bored empty nester. Old Wilbur was passing away. I was glad I could be there. Even though he couldn't talk, I just guessed that he could listen and he was listening, so I just talked to him like normal. I assumed he could hear every word, and I bet he did. Have I mentioned I'm a stubborn German Catholic? I said some prayers with him and talked to him and told him how much of a real good friend he was to me. There in that room of fading away life, I explained how I was so glad to get to know him and spend time with him and how he had a positive impact on my life. I don't know for sure whether he could hear me or not, but it felt good to have the opportunity to talk and say goodbye. I let him know I will miss him dearly. And I walked out of his room. Wilbur passed away peacefully the next day, but not before he was able to open up a piece of my heart and teach me about friendship in his own unique way. Can you imagine how much I would have missed out on if I had not started taking the drive to the senior home, if I had not tried to learn to call bingo on Monday nights? I'm learning a lot at that home, and I'm becoming a better person. I've learned how to become a better friend. I've learned how to share and how to listen, 
I've learned to find joy in simple things. I've learned how to slow down and how time spent visiting and talking can build lasting relationships. I've learned about living as well as dying. I've experienced sorrow and loss, yet at the same time experiencing joy in everlasting memories. This might be a bit selfish, but it didn't take me long to learn that I get as much or more out of volunteering than the residents do. But most of all, I've learned two things. Number one, you don't have to be bored. And number two, I've learned what it feels like and also what it takes to have a real good friend. And what a great story. And thanks to Paul in Minneapolis for sharing it with us, his friendship with Wilbur. Wilbur and the Empty Nester. And again, thanks to our great affiliate WCCO 830. I wanted to be more involved, more invested, he said when he started this story. Paul did. And so he drove to this senior home. And my goodness, it just changed his life. And by the way, when he finally went from that cafeteria space to that room space and saw the pictures, saw the beautiful wife, the three children, that the kids, well, they didn't visit enough. And well, he didn't really want to know why. Probably more complicated than anyone could imagine. Or actually, we could imagine. And then, of course, being there when his friend passed. And having witnessed his friend say, you're a real good friend to other people. And what that did for Paul and Wilbur. I've learned a lot. I've learned to be a better friend. I've learned about living and dying. And the big two things, you don't have to be bored. And I learned how to be a friend. What a great story of friendship, of love, of a stranger. Paul's story here on Our American Story. return to Our American Stories, and our next one is about a writer, a writer you may know, and you may have even read back in high school or college, if you were lucky enough, Louisa May Alcott, and she's the writer of Little Woman. The book was her most popular, and it's been adapted twice as a silent film and four times with sound. It's also been made into six television shows. Here's Faith with Louisa May's story. In the mid-19th century, few people felt that a woman could be unmarried and still be happy and successful, even live a fulfilled life. Author Louisa May Alcott was what people would have called an old maid. Yet her life was filled with many successes and experiences, including her most successful book, Little Women, which she wrote in 1868 and 1869 in two separate volumes. After the success of the first volume, her publisher asked her to write the second. But we often read them as one. The book is a semi-autobiographical account of her childhood with her three sisters. It follows the life of the four March girls, Meg, Joe, Beth, and Amy, who live with their mother, Marmee. 
while their father is serving off as a pastor miles away from home involved in the American Civil War. Alcott identified with Joe, the stubborn, willful, fiery-tempered, but charmingly creative second eldest daughter. I was born with a boy's nature, and have fought my fight with a boy's spirit and a boy's wrath. Never liked girls, or knew many, except my sisters. The book is the girl's journey from childhood to womanhood, and all that lies therein. It's a romantic child's fiction and a sentimental novel. Literary historian Sarah Elbert argues that within Little Women, we find the first representation of the all-American girl and her multiple aspects displayed in the differing March sisters. While Little Women was the most successful of Louisa May Alcott's writings, it was actually the book that she never wanted to write. Niles wants a girl's story. Lively, simple books are very much needed for girls. I said I'd try. Here's Susan Cheever, writer of Louisa May Alcott, a personal biography, talking about how Alcott came to write Little Women. It was the book that absolutely changed her life. It made her rich. It made her well-known after years and years of struggle. Uh, But she didn't want to write it. It was the last thing she wanted to do. She felt it went against all of her creative impulses. She had said to her editor, I'll think about it, and stalled and stalled and stalled. She didn't want to do it at all. And it, she ended up doing it, as we'll see, through a series of unfortunate accidents. And I think that often great things happen to us through a series of what seem to be unfortunate accidents. Uh, Louisa May Alcott was 36 years old when she wrote Little Women in 1868. She was the second of four daughters um, of an extraordinary family who lived in and around Boston. She was the daughter of Abba Alcott, who was an aristocrat who had married Bronson Alcott very late in life. He was one of these characters. He wore a cape and a big hat, and he carried a cane, and he had long blonde hair. Uh, But he had a lot of trouble making a living. Anyway, she was the daughter of Bronson Alcott, and Bronson Alcott, I believe, was an educational genius. He really was the first person in this country to start progressive education. And he did it because he believed, and he had no education, so he pulled this out of the sky. He believed that children were angels who came from heaven, as Wordsworth had written, trailing clouds of glory. Now, most people in the 1840s believed that children were vipers, who had to be forcefully civilized before they could join us, you know, big people. Bronson believed the opposite. He believed that adults could learn from children. He gave Louisa one great thing, which was the community in which she grew up. His friends were Emerson and Thoreau and Hawthorne and all kinds of people like that. So as a girl, she was taught by Thoreau. She used Emerson's library right away. And she grew up in this extraordinary progressive intellectual community as the daughter of a man who was very respected in that community. Um, Bronson was fascinated by children, just fascinated. He wasn't just an educator, he was a kind of student of children. But she drove him a little bit crazy, and she was definitely the family rebel, and there was a lot of disappointment in in her, both from her father and her mother. Now, Bronson, this brilliant educator and this friend of the brilliant transcendentalist, had one, he had two big problems. One was he couldn't hang on to money, and the other was that he couldn't write. 
He was one of the world's worst writers. Uh, one critic said that reading Bronson Alcott was like watching a train go by with 15 boxcars and one passenger. Louisa decided that she had to make money for the family and that she would do it by writing. Louisa did everything she could get paid for. She was a seamstress, she was a teacher, she was a governess, she was a companion. So she decided to take this essay she had written to, to the great editor of, of the time, James T. Fields. And she knew James T. Fields through her father. James T. Fields was Hawthorne's editor. James T. Fields was De Quincey's editor. James T. Fields was the man, right? So she takes her essay and she walks across Boston. They're living on Pinckney Street. And uh, here's what happens. She passed the Boston Common and turned into the bustling center of downtown. There, the spire of the Old South Church presided like a disapproving Puritan dowager over the teeming business of the new Boston. There was the bookshop next to Mrs. Abner's coffee house, where Fields took authors and colleagues for coffee and hot buns. There was the gorgeous palace of the music hall, where Louisa had recently gone to hear Theodore Parker demand equality for women. Now Louisa headed for the second floor of the old corner bookshop, where Fields had his office behind a green curtain that separated him from his young assistant Thomas Niles and the piles of manuscripts he had yet to read. She handed him the manuscript, her first and last memoir essay, How I Went Out to Service. He motioned her to sit and began to read it. She could hear the noise of Thomas Niles' pen scratching and the chatter in the bookstore downstairs. Finally, the great James T. Fields looked up at her and delivered the verdict she would remember for a long time. Stick to your teaching, Miss Alcott. You can't write. That was not a good moment. Um, yet, I think it was the moment at which Louisa May Alcott became a writer. And I think that if you want to be a writer, you take criticism in and you're hurt, of course, and devastated, of course, but you almost immediately turn it around and go, well, I'll show them. And it's clearly what happened with Louisa Alcott and James T. Fields. James T. Fields was trying to be nice. He tried to help her in her teaching career. He loaned her $40 to help her start a school with her sister. But she took that in in a very interesting way. However, Louisa's career did not turn around at that point. But she decided that she would show James T. Fields and the rest of the world by writing a big, serious novel, a novel that would please her friend Emerson, a novel that would impress her father, a novel which she called Moods. And probably you haven't read it, maybe you haven't even heard of it. I, I don't think it's such a successful novel, and neither did anybody else, Wh which was hard for her, because she loved that novel. Anyway, she got one review which was particularly painful in the North American Review, uh, from a guy who said, um, the two most striking facts with regard to moods are the author's ignorance of human nature and her self-confidence in spite of that ignorance. So that wasn't good, and her writing career was not looking good. And then the, their entire lives came to a halt with the beginning of the Civil War. And when we come back, more of this extraordinary story of perseverance... And my goodness, so much more. The story of Louisa May Alcott continues here on Our American Stories.
return to the story of Louisa May Alcott, the writer of Little Woman. Author Susan Cheever has been telling us her story, and Susan Cheever wrote the book Louisa May Alcott, a personal biography. We left off with Alcott's writing career not seeming very promising, but it all came to a stop when the Civil War began. And Louisa and everyone in Concord and everyone in Cambridge um, took it very hard. It, 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 of course, was a nightmare. Nobody thought it was going to happen. Louisa didn't know what to do. She was very involved with abolition. Concord had been a stop on the Underground Railroad. She had seen the whole thing. So she ended up enlisting as a Civil War nurse. And it was she was one of the first female nurses in this country. It, it was thought that nurses had to be men because they had to handle naked bodies, etc., 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 But a woman named Dorothy Dix had started, had convinced the War Department to start a corps of female nurses as long as they were plain, unmarried, and over 30. Louisa fit the bill. So she went down to Washington, D.C. to work in the Union Hotel Hospital. It had been a hotel. It was just barely remodeled into a hospital. And oddly enough, or amazingly enough, the second day she got there was the day that in Fredericksburg, Virginia... A few miles south, General Ambrose Burnside ordered 14 suicidal attacks of the Union Army against the entrenched Confederate Army. Here are historians Chris Mikowski and Donald Fance describing that fateful day. The majority of federal troops at this point are not very optimistic about their chances. They recognize how strong that position is the Confederates have atop Marie's Heights. Union troops have to charge across several hundred yards of open ground just to reach the Confederate position. Once there, they're going to encounter Confederates who were posted very strongly in massed ranks behind a stone wall. If you survived all that, then you had the Confederate artillery, which was on the high ground behind the stone wall. Those guns were able to fire down over the heads of their own men and scour the ground in front of them. So any way you look at it, it was a killing ground. The day at Fredericksburg was one of the worst battles of the war. The ground was carpeted with the Union dead. And the next morning, Louisa May Alcott looked out the window of the Union Hotel Hospital and she saw carts as far as she could see. It looked to her like farmers coming to market, but of course it was carts filled with the dead and wounded men from Fredericksburg coming to her hospital. But she loved it. She was great at being a nurse. She knew how to talk to the men. She knew how to dig in. She learned how to wash wounds. She worked with the surgeons. She took the job of being up all night, of being the night nurse. She told them stories from Dickens. She wrote letters home when they were alive, and then when the men died, she wrote that very sad letter home saying that the man had died. She just, everything that she hated and that had troubled her fell away. There was no phoniness. There was no, you know, shame about being poor. It was life and death, and she knew what to do when the stakes were that high. And it was an extraordinary experience for her. And her letters home from the hospital are written in a completely different way than she had ever written before. It was in the Union Hotel Hospital that she found her voice. However, at the Union Hotel, she also fell sick with a lung infection, which in those days they gave you medicine that had mercury in it. So, this resulted in her growing sicker and sicker. 
until her father had to come and get her and take her back to Concord. On the brink of death, her and her father put together the book Hospital Sketches, which in the end was the compilation of her letters home and the letters written to the families whose soldiers had fallen. During that time, she was not sure she would live herself. Louisa May Alcott, through the help and care of her family, overcame her illness. And being the hard worker that she was, she didn't wait long before trying to find work again. As she got better, she decided again that it was time to take her next step as a writer. So she went to Thomas Niles, who was her editor. He had been James T. Fields' assistant. And she said to him, you know, what, what should my next book be? And he said, well, he said, the only book I could really sell that you might write would be a book for young women. And she was horrified. She was insulted. She was like, do they ask Emerson to write a book for young women? I don't think so, right? What is this? I thought I was a serious writer. You know, all these years she had worked to be a serious writer. She had written all these stories under a pseudonym for Frank Leslie. She had written moods. She had written hospital sketches. And they were still sort of trivializing her, she thought. But what happened was uh, Thomas Niles was an inspired bully. So he wrote Bronson Alcott a letter saying, um, you know, I'm a big fan of your writing. And I would love it if Louisa wrote this book for young women. And if she did, I think we could publish your next book as well. So that was a brilliant stroke. Bronson started in on Louisa, trying to get her to come home and write this book for young women. And... Eventually, he got her. Um, she came home in January of, or went back to Concord. She had, she'd gone to Boston. She'd gotten herself a job. She was having a good time. She wasn't going to write the book for young women. But he got her back to Concord in January of 1868 for the purpose of writing this book for young women, which she didn't want to write. And so she stalled and stalled and stalled. She did everything but write the book for young women. January went by, February, March, April, May. Um, finally, in May, she sat down just thinking, oh, you know, I might as well try it. She was totally discouraged about it. She thought she had written a little bit about four sisters who she called the pathetic family. So she just thought, well, I'll just write what happened, you know, which is, of course, not what she did. But that's how it felt to her. And, you know, within about three weeks, she had finished the first part of Little Women. She didn't like it very much. Thomas Niles didn't think it was too great either. Um, Thomas Niles had a niece who got hold of the manuscript and was up all night. But it's the minute, almost the minute, Thomas Niles published the first part of Little Women in November, uh, the outpouring of letters and admiration was huge. And by Christmas, Louisa May Alcott was one of the best-known writers in the world and one of the wealthiest. So it was really a kind of amazing overnight success uh, because of what happened with, with Little Women, that, which she didn't want to write. So after the huge success of Little Women, a letter to James T. Fields. I remember he had lent her money. Dear Mr. Fields, once upon a time you lent me $40, kindly saying that I might return them when I had made a pot of gold. As the miracle has been unexpectedly wrought, I wish to fulfill my part of the bargain and herewith repay my debt with many thanks. Very truly yours, L.M. Alcott. So um, she got her own back. The same man who told her to stick to her teaching, Miss Alcott, you can't write. She got to prove wrong. Little Women wasn't necessarily the book she wanted to write. But in the end, what was its impact on others? And, ultimately, on herself. 
She wrote the first part. She turned it in. He didn't like it much. He published it. The outpouring was huge. And then he said to her, okay, write the second part. And then they both realized that they had a tiger by the tail. And then, God bless him, he said to her, I can give you a flat fee or you can take a percentage, but if I were you, I would take the percentage. So she did. Neither of them realized what she had done. It's sort of fascinating. And I don't think that's that unusual, I have to say. I think writers often don't know when they've done their best work. The beauty and intrigue of this book is the perspective that Alcott brings. She wrote reflectively on her own life. In one chapter in particular, we find Joe at the age of 25, feeling old and like she has nothing to show for it. She's been focused on her career rather than finding a husband. And in this moment, the narrator detours from the story. To the girl in the 19th century, growing up and not finding a husband could feel like the end of the world. Little Women became a memoir of sorts. So although Alcott was quite happy and successful, she still had reflections from her spinsterhood. It's interesting to contrast her life with the pity she feels for old maids in the following passage. Quote, At 25, girls begin to talk about being old maids, but secretly resolve that they never will be. At 30, they say nothing about it, but quietly accept the fact, and, if sensible, console themselves by remembering that they have 20 more useful happy years, in which they may be learning to grow old gracefully. Don't laugh at the spinsters, dear girls, for often very tender, tragic romances are hidden away in the hearts that beat so quietly under the sober gowns, and many silent sacrifices of youth, health, ambition, love itself, make the faded faces beautiful in God's sight. Even the sad, sour sisters should be kindly dealt with, because they have missed the sweetest part of life, if for no other reason. And looking at them with compassion, not contempt, Girls in their bloom should remember that they too may miss the blossom time. That rosy cheeks don't last forever. That silver threads will come in that bonny brown hair. And that by and by, kindness and respect will be as sweet as love and admiration now. I'm Faith Garcia, and this is Our American Stories. And great job as always, Faith. And what a story it is, Louisa May Alcott's story. And you can hear so much of what we do on the arts and literature in particular. Go to ouramericannetwork.org. We've done stories about Melville, about Hemingway, Fitzgerald, with a reading from The Great Gatsby. Louisa May Alcott's story, in a sense, the story of the 19th century and the beginning of the women's movement in a very real and smart and bold way. All of that here on Our American Stories. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we tell stories about everything here on this show, from the arts to sports, and from business to history, and everything in between, including your stories. 
send them to OurAmericanStories.com. That's OurAmericanStories.com. They're some of our favorites. And today, we have the story of Medal of Honor recipient Gary Bykirk. Gary didn't have the most stable upbringing. He moved 11 times before he was in the ninth grade. He finally settled down in high school, fell in love with a girl, and followed her to SUNY Brockport College, where they were both studying to become phys ed teachers. Here's Gary. Uh, We had gotten there and started college. After about three or four weeks, she broke up with me. Uh, So there I was in college in 1965, with not any real good reason for being there anymore. Uh, and, And in the meantime, a very good friend of mine, he had suffered the same kind of experience. And so one day we were sitting together and we got talking and uh, his name was Don, Don Jocks. And he said, so Gary, what are we going to do? And I said, I don't know, Don, you know, we were both two young guys, 20 years old with our hearts broken. And he, he said, well, I'm, I come from a Marine family. All my family were Marines. He said, let's go in the Marine Corps together, buddy system, Gary. And I said, Don, I'm not going to go in the Marine Corps. Those guys are crazy. I had recently read a book called The Green Berets by Robin Moore. And, uh, and to me, uh, that was exciting. That was challenging. And besides that, uh, from what I knew about the war, that just seemed a really good way to fight the war, to become assimilated into the, into the culture, uh, become one of the people. And I, that sounded very, very challenging. And not only that, but it felt like the, uh, the way that the war should be fought. And I said to Don, I'm going to go into Green Berets, Don. And we shook hands, said goodbye. He went on into the Marine Corps. A couple of years later, I received word that he was killed at Quezon. Well, I had gone down in, to the uh, recruiting station in Rochester here. And I told the guy, I said, look, I'm going to be a Green Beret. And he kind of laughed and he said, well, you just can't enlist in the Green Berets. And he was saying, you know, you don't really know what you're getting yourself into. I can't sign you up to be a Green Beret. Plus, he looked at me. Maybe I didn't look like the type that could, could do that way. But he threw down a challenge to me. He said, but if you're really interested, I think I can get you in to uh, the Airborne Infantry. And then it's up to you whether or not you're going to get to be a Green Beret. So he threw down this challenge to me. And uh, I was always ready for a challenge. Uh, that was just part of my nature. So in August of 67, I, I raised my hand and uh, took the oath. And I was on my way to Fort Dix for basic training. Stayed at Fort Dix for infantry training after another after eight weeks of basic did eight weeks of infantry and then i received orders to go to airborne school down to fort benning took off down to fort benning uh had three weeks of of uh, airborne training the challenges that i encountered in basic and, and in ait advanced infantry training were challenging but it was i never really felt like i wanted to quit or do anything even though they tried a, a lot of mental and emotional things that nowadays are, are illegal but back then they weren't but each one of those things just kind of made me more committed to uh, achieving my goal of becoming a Green Beret. And then air, airborne school was another physical challenge where I, I say that I, I had the first experience of hitting the wall, you know, the, the mile, the five-mile run and everything in combat boots and stuff. Those, I really hit the wall. It's like where you feel like, well, if, I think I might quit. But if I just, I just told myself, I can, I can do one more step. And I just did that. And that's what got me through the wall. And that was an important lesson is that I realized that I was capable of doing much more than I thought I could if I could just do one more, one more push-up, one more step, take one more breath, I could break through that wall. And I I finished airborne school, graduated, uh, had the silver wings put on my chest. 
the last week we had a group of uh, about four or five of these poster men from the, for the Green Berets. They looked like they could have been poster guys advertising Green Berets. They came down and they, they interviewed, I think there's probably about 15 of us or so that were trying out for Special Forces. And we had a, a couple of days of physical tests, some, some written exams, some interviews. And after that, I think there were probably about five of us that were told that we were accepted and we were on our way to, uh, on our way to, to Fort Bragg to begin Special Forces training. Uh, it was during Special Forces training that I probably received most of the things in my life that impacted me and changed me and helped to make me the person that I am today. It was just a tremendous, tremendous challenge, both physically, emotionally, mentally. Briefly, we had the f first phase that was um, eight weeks of just intense military training, tactics, operations, physical, a little bit more of guerrilla warfare, weapons training. And that was called phase one back then. Back now, I think it's called selection. After that, we were allowed to wear a beret, but we didn't have a our group flashlight yet, which signified which group you're going to go to. But being able to wear that beret the first time was a real sense of uh, achievement. It was a, a goal that uh, I had had. I was partway there. I had a, a green beret. I, I wasn't a green beret yet, but I could wear the green beret. At that time, then they, they interviewed us and they said, okay, Special Forces has a specialty of medical, weapons, communications, engineering, demolitions, or operations and intelligence. Which one do you want to go to? I chose medic uh, because at the time, and it still is one of the most challenging programs that the military has, a Special Forces medic is, a, is just a tremendous accomplishment to be able to achieve that. Uh, at the time, this would have been in 67, 68, most guys after our training uh, we, ex we expected and wanted to go to Vietnam. I was assigned to the 3rd Special Forces Group, which our area of operation was Africa, but we were based at Fort Bragg. Our time there, we were welcomed by our Sergeant Major, Company Sergeant Major. There was about four or five of us that went to the 3rd Group. He welcomed us in a morning formation. There was the five of us standing up in front of the headquarters building. And for about two minutes, he just walked up and down in front of us, stared us in the eye, walked behind us, was giving us the once-over while we stood at attention. Then he came around to the front of us and began his uh, official address. And basically he was telling us, I know that you all think you're pretty special. Actually, I want you to know that you are really only maybe about two or three inches above whale dung at the bottom of the ocean. <laughs> he said, you think you're a Green Beret. He said, what you are going to experience now and you're going to realize is that you've just learned and earned the right to begin to train to know what it is to be a Green Beret. And what a humbling experience to get there and then to learn you're just beginning. You're just beginning to learn. And more with this remarkable American voice, Gary Bykirk's voice, his story, his path to the Medal of Honor and beyond, here on Our American Stories. We continue with our American stories and the story of Medal of Honor recipient Gary Bykirk 
and after being dumped by his high school girlfriend, he and his pal decided to enlist his friend Don to the Marine Corps. He was killed in Vietnam. And Gary, well, he decided he wanted to be a Green Beret. Let's return to Gary. One of the things that Special Forces looks for is an independent attitude of a person who thinks out of the box, almost like a rebellious kind of person who doesn't like to conform to the norms. And boy, I fit that to the T. During basic training, every trainee usually got KP once just so they'd have the experience. I had it nine times in basic training because of uh, my attitude. And so I, I met these challenges, but along the way, my attitude got in the way many times. And so I was always getting extra duty or things like that. And one of these times I had guard duty. The day that I had off, I went down to uh, Fayetteville. I hit a bar early in the morning, started drinking. And the only thing I remember about that time was going out to the parking meter about every 25 minutes to putting another coin in so I wouldn't get a ticket for parking. Uh, the next thing I remember is I woke up and I was tried to move and I just ached. I was, I was really, really sore, could hardly breathe. And I looked up and I saw my, my team sergeant behind bars and I said, Sarge, what are you doing behind bars? And he said, I'm not behind bars, Bikerk, you are. And I said, what did I do? And he said, well, you really did it this time. And I said... From what I got from the police report, you uh, spent most of the day in this bar, got in your car, tried to drive back to base, Fort Bragg. You bounced off a couple of parked cars in Fayetteville. The Fayetteville police uh, tried to pull you over. You wouldn't pull over. You took off to the Interstate 95. Then the North Carolina State Police got involved with this chase. They ran you over. You came out of the car with a billy, with a billy club. I usually carried a billy club under my seat. I came out with a billy club and, try and assaulted the North Carolina State Police, and they beat me up really bad. And uh, they said, and now you're in jail. And he said, right now you're facing charges of driving while intoxicated, hit and run, assault with a deadly weapon. And those are the only charges that I can remember. And I said, what do you think I should do? And he said, you better get yourself a lawyer. So I took his advice. I went down to Fayetteville. I got a lawyer started telling him my story. About 30 seconds into the story, he pushed himself away from the desk and he said, you can stop right there. I've heard this a hundred times. He said, here's what you got to do. How quick can you get yourself out of the country? And I said, well, I think we're on alert to go to Mali, Africa. And he said, when? And I said, maybe six months. And he said, not good enough. He said, you got to get yourself out of the country in 30 days. Can you do it? And I said, uh, I, don't, I don't know. I can try. So he said, you better. So I went back to, uh, back to base, and I thought, and I said, well, the only way that I know of is I'll go re-enlist for Vietnam. Re-enlisting, I could go to Vietnam within 30 days. So I re-enlisted for Vietnam, was promoted to E-4, uh, received a re-enlistment bonus at the time, which was $600 for re-enlisting. Went back to the lawyer, and I said, look, it, I'm, a, I'm going to Vietnam within 30 days, and he said, good. Now, when we get to court, when I tell you just say guilty, Your Honor. I said, okay. So we went to court. There were a lot of a lot of military guys facing this civilian court, and they were getting handed tremendous sentences, jail time and everything. And then they were going to receive military discipline as well. My case came up. They called my name. I stood up before the judge. He read off a bunch of things, asked me, how do I plead? My lawyer looked at me. I looked at him, and he shook. He nodded his head. And so I said, guilty, Your Honor. 
And he said, okay, I find you guilty of reckless driving and I find you $100. So apparently what my lawyer had done was he had talked with the DA and they got, uh, he said, look at this guy's on his way to Vietnam. Show him a little brick, get, show him a little grace. As I was leaving the court, my lawyer said, oh yeah, by the way, my, my fee is $500. So I, I gave him the rest of my reenlistment bonus and there was my, my reenlistment bonus of $600 was gone, but I was on my way to Vietnam. I got into Vietnam in July of 69, and I remember one, one of the experiences um, that uh, was really poignant to me at the time was it was the, when the uh, man, first man landed on the moon. And I remember thinking, man, here we, we put a man on the moon, but yet we're still crawling around in the mud over here in the jungles, fighting a war, killing each other. I said, you know, what a contradiction. You know, what an irony that we have the ability to put a man on the moon, but we still can't even get along with each other down here. So I got into Cameron Bay, and my, uh, I was sent to a, uh, a replacement company. And one of my first duties, because I was an E4, was uh, I was on burnout latrine duty, which meant that I had to take those 55-gallon drums that they used for burnout latrines, and I had to pull them out of the latrine and pour diesel on them and, and stir them up with a, and light them on fire and just stir, and stir them up. So there I was in Cameron Bay doing this one day with my, with my beret on, and I saw a... Uh, a sergeant major walking over in the distance, and he had a beret on, and he happened to see me, and he said, hey, beret, what are you doing there? And I said, what's it look like I'm doing? And he said, what's your MOS? What's your military specialty? And I said, a medic. And he said, come on with me. And I said, but, but I don't have any orders. I don't have anything. And he goes, that's okay. Don't worry about it. And he said, look, I work up in two corps. We need medics with our special operations groups up there. I'm going to put you on a plane, and we'll get you, we'll get you up there. So while I was there, I met, I met this... Uh, crusty old E-8. Turned out he was a, a veteran from World War II, Korea, and he had spent like five years already in Vietnam. And he was just a tremendous, tremendous medic. He was my, became my mentor. And while I was there, he said, look, you don't want to go to special operations. He said, you were trained as a medic. Do what Green Beret medics were trained to do. Go out in an A camp. And he said, I've got the perfect A camp for you. He said, it's the camp that I, I helped establish back in the early 60s. Throughout the highlands of Vietnam, there were probably close to 30 mountainyard tribes. Now, the mountainyards were not Vietnamese. They were an ethnic minority, about 30 different tribes. Each tribe had its own area, had its own territory, had its own language, had its own village, culture, and community. And so I was assigned to Doxiang. And the mountainyards in that area were called Sedang. I remember flying out there the first day and just seeing the, the beautiful, lush jungles that were that, were, that made up the Central Highlands and the mountains. It was just a beautiful, beautiful country. And so I, I reported into Doxiang. There were 11 other Americans there. Uh, and we lived in the middle of this uh, mountain yard village. There were 2,300 mountain yards. Uh, and in the mountain yard culture, because of their need to exist in that kind of a uh, environment, when an individual reached 12 years old, they were considered an adult, which meant they had responsibilities to fulfill and they depended on each individual to fulfill those responsibilities. We had a 12-year-old that was an M60 machine gunner in our company. We were instructed to pick out a bodyguard, someone that we could befriend and develop a special friendship with. Uh, I picked a young mountain yard boy named Deo. He was 15 years old, which meant that he had already had three years of combat. And I remember saying to him, Deo, you got to help me. The word for doctor in Vietnamese is boxy, so they all called me boxy. Uh, and he said, how can I help you, Boxy? And I said, look, 
I hate snakes. I'm afraid of tigers. You got to help me learn how to survive out in this jungle. And he laughed and he said, Boxy, he said, we don't survive in the jungle. He said, we live. The jungle gives us our way of life. We need the jungle to survive, to, to live and exist. I'm going to teach you how to live, not just survive in the jungle. That was an important lesson that he taught me about the difference between surviving and living. Because these people had found a way to, in the midst of this beautiful but hostile environment on jungle that was just filled with snakes and tigers and things that could kill you in a minute, they weren't afraid of it. They found a way to, to live, to thrive, to develop a, a, a village and a way of life, a culture. It helped them become the people that they were. Under Dale's tutelage, he helped me assimilate into the mountain art culture. I became one of them. On April 1st, early in the morning, uh, we started receiving incoming and we had had a lot of incoming in the past many times, but many times, but uh, this was different. I mean, it was just intense. We had a barrage. It's just, it never stopped for hours. It was just continuous artillery and rocket attacks. I was up because I was uh, attending an all-night funeral for uh, one of our security mountain yards who had recently died. So when the barrage started, I started to run towards the my alert position on my way to go there to meet some of the other yard medics because I was going to distribute medical kits and things to them so that they could go to their respective companies and start treating the wounded. I didn't make it to the bunker because halfway there I, I saw a yard that had been wounded so I stopped and started to treat him. I heard a rocket coming in. I threw myself on top of him and the, and the rocket landed about 25 feet away from us. As the rocket exploded, much of the shrapnel slammed into my back and I remember thinking that that must be what it feels like to get kicked by a horse. And you're listening to Gary Bykirk, and he's a Medal of Honor recipient. He's telling his story in the best way he can, which is straight as an arrow. And my goodness, listening to him learning from a young mountain boy named Deo how to not merely survive in the jungle, but to, to live in the jungle, to thrive in the jungle. My goodness, this great storytelling continues. Gary Bykirk's story, here on Our American Stories. And we continue with Our American Stories and the story of Medal Honor recipient Gary Bykirk. We left off with him working at a camp in the central highlands of Vietnam as a special forces medic. Camp had been attacked by the North Vietnamese. A rocket had landed about 20 feet away from him and the mountain people he was embedded with. Gary laid on top of one of those men to protect him. We returned to Gary. As I was impacted by the the shrapnel, uh, I, I did have a, like an out-of-body experience because I saw myself going head over heels. And as I was going head over heels, I looked back and the mountain yard that I was laying on top of was just blown apart. And so I, I landed in the four-deuce pit surrounded by sandbags. I realized what I needed to be doing, so I tried to get up, but I couldn't move because some of the shrapnel had been lodged in my spinal column and knocked my spinal column unconscious. I couldn't move. Couldn't, couldn't get up. 
The next thing I remember is I felt somebody picking me up. I looked and it was Dale, my bodyguard. And I, I said to Dale, how did you find me? And he said, this is where I belong. He said, I belong by you, by your side. So he picked me up and he wanted to take me down to the medical bunker and I said, no, we need to stay up here. During this time, Dale carried me and we had been notified that an American officer, our XO, had been shot out of the, uh, out of, we had a John Wayne Tower in the middle of the camp. And we heard that he was in a, uh, a real dangerous spot. We went out, we got him, brought him back down to the medical bunker. Dale wanted me to stay down there. I said, no, we need to get back to the battle. So we, Dale carried me back out into the battle. During that time, I was shot another time in the side, in the back. Dale again took me down to the bunker. The other medic on the team, Dan, said, you got to stay down here. I got to take care of you. And I said, no, we need to get back. And so Dale carried me back out into the battle again, and we continued to fight, continued to provide aid to the uh, to the women and the children and the men that were being wounded at the time. We were in the, in the, our bunkers in the trenches area, and we ran into a, I remember running into some, uh, the NVA that had had encircled the wire, and I remember him seeing him. He shot me, and the wound hit me in the wound me in the stomach. Dale took me back after that wound, and by that time they were looking at me and saying, "It's going to be pretty bad." And I said, "Look at Dale. If I'm going to die, I'm not dying down here. I want to. I choose to die in the battle. I guess that's a warrior creed. If you're going to die, you die in the battle." So Dale took me back out into the battle. Once we got back out there, Dale, now keep in mind, this is a 15-year-old kid that's doing this. He got shot in the leg, and he couldn't carry me anymore. But he didn't want to leave me. He didn't want to go down and take care of himself. He began to drag me as we continued to fight and continued to provide aid to, to those who were being wounded. I can remember that there were times that we both, you know, both feeling like we couldn't do anymore, and we would look at each other and we would just smile and say, we can do this, we can do this. And uh, Deo's strength became part of my strength. My strength became part of his strength as we continued to do what we were trained to do, which was minister first aid to those that were being wounded. We heard a rocket coming in. Deo rolled me over and laid on top of me to protect me from the blast because we knew this one was coming close. And the rocket exploded. Uh, we both went up in the air, came back down, and I said, okay, Deo, come on, let's go. I found out Dale was killed by the rocket blast because I, you know, at the time there wasn't really, people say, how did you feel at that time? And I honestly say that I, there was really no time for any kind of guilt or anything. There was just, I knew what we had to be doing. I don't remember feeling anything except looking back now. There was just a tremendous sense of love, love that Dale had for me, the love that I had for Dale, the love that I had for those people. I wasn't afraid that I might die because I think love was a much more powerful emotion that was motivating me at the time. And we continued on doing what we were doing uh, until I finally collapsed and um, then I was medevaced. Uh, I, I actually don't, re I only remember being thrown in the chopper. Uh, that was my last conscious moment. And the next conscious moment that I have is uh, waking up in the ICU ward in the 71st evac at Play Coup. I remember doing a, uh, doing like an exam of myself, my surroundings, where am I, what's going on, my abdomen had been ripped open from the uh, uh, from the shrapnel and from the gunshot wounds, and my large intestine was just lying in a bag on my on my stomach. Um, I looked up and I saw all kinds of tubes running into my neck, into my arms. Uh, I was catheterized. 
I couldn't feel my legs, but I reached down to make sure that they were there. They were there. And then I felt this darkness overcoming me, unconsciousness. And I had been unconscious plenty of times before in college, but this was different. There was a darkness and a finality to this. And so I, it's what I call my hand-to-hand -hand combat with death, because I knew that death was overtaking me. And so I brought every weapon that I could, every skill that I had been taught, all of the things that had brought me success in the past. I took those weapons and those skills and those strengths, and I fought death. I said, I'm not going to go unconscious. I can't because I don't want to die. I don't want to die. But it was like death was saying, is this the best you got, Gary? You're not going to, you're not going to live. And I'd go unconscious. Well, that experience of waking up and fighting death hand to hand and then losing, that happened a couple times. And each time it became more and more certain in my mind that I was dying. One of the times I came to, and there was a chaplain standing there. He said to me, he was a young guy, maybe about my age. And he said, I'm glad to see you're awake. And I said, I'm glad to be awake, sir. And he said, do you want to pray? I've been praying for you. Would you like to pray? And I, I said, I don't know how to pray. I don't even know who to pray to. And he handed me a cross and he said, that's okay, son. God knows how to listen. And so at 23, 24 years old, I made my first prayer. I said, God, if you're real, I sure need you. And something happened at that moment. Um, you know, I wasn't miraculously healed. There were no bolts of lightning or things like that. But all of a sudden, I had this peace that came over me in a sense of something bigger than me, more powerful than me, that was real. All of a sudden, I wasn't aware, afraid of, of dying anymore. I wasn't even afraid if I could never walk again because at that time, it wasn't clear whether I would walk again or not. But I just knew that there was something greater than myself. And I say that when my courage failed in that hospital bed, my faith was born. I said, I need to find out who this God is. I mean, think about it. If, if you believe that there is a God, the greatest thing you can do in your life is to find him. So I started this journey of trying to find God. I, uh, I eventually healed. I went to Japan. I then came back to the States. I went to Valley Forge in Phoenixville, Pennsylvania. Well, I eventually was fully recuperated, and I was assigned to the 10th Special Forces Group, which I didn't want to go to. Uh, when I was discharged, they said, where do you want to go? And I said, oh, you mean I get a choice? And they said, sure, you get a choice. And I said, okay, well, send me back to the 5th in Vietnam. If I can't do the 5th, send me to the 8th group in Panama or in Okinawa. Or that was the first group in Okinawa. If I can't do that, I want to go to the 8th group in Panama. So I got my orders, and I didn't get Vietnam, Okinawa, or Panama. They sent me to the 10th Special Forces Group at Fort Devens, Massachusetts. Nobody coming back from Vietnam wanted to be stateside. It was like playing army, you know, and it was just a, being stateside in the 70s was a, a, a difficult place to be for military. At the time, they were offering a, uh, opportunities for early outs. So I got an early out to go back to college, and now I wanted to go on with my medical uh, goals. I wanted to become a doctor and go back to Vietnam. So I remember going back to SUNY Brockport, where I had attended before, changed my major to pre-med, I got out of the military on August 31st. September 3rd, I was in classes at Brockport. And you're listening to Gary Bykirk, recipient of the Medal of Honor. And what a story he tells. Laying in an army hospital with his large intestine in a bag on his stomach. He couldn't feel his legs. And he felt a darkness come over him. He knew he was hand-to-hand -hand now with death. 
At the age of 23 or 24, he said his first prayer, God, if you're real, I need you, he said. And all of a sudden he said, I had a peace over me. I wasn't afraid of dying. There was something greater than myself. When my courage failed, my faith was born. More with this remarkable storyteller and this remarkable story, his story, Gary Bykirk's story, here on Our American Stories. Turn to our American stories and to the story of Medal of Honor recipient Gary Bykirk. And by the way, if you want to read the story, the book is Blaze of Light. Go to Amazon.com and order it. You won't put it down. Gary had just returned from Vietnam after nearly dying from his battle wounds. He received an opportunity for an early out of the military, and he decided to take it. He returned to school to become a doctor so he could go back to Vietnam. But in the 1970s, being a service member on a college campus was nothing short of hostile territory. I didn't have many clothes, so I had to wear my army fatigues and stuff, fatigue jackets, field jackets. Didn't have a place to stay, so I was sleeping in my van. And it wasn't too long before I started uh, experiencing some of the things that many of us back in the 70s who returned from Vietnam experienced. And it was a lot of the anti-war stuff. I would be studying in the library. People would see that I was a vet. They'd walk by and push my books off the desk. Um, One morning I woke up in the van and the van was being shaken. I looked out and I saw probably about 10 or 15 students out there shaking my van and yelling at me saying, hey, come on outside, baby killer. We want to know what it's like to burn villages and kill babies. It was just another hurtful experience. Finally, one day a group of them surrounded me and um, spit on me. And I said... uh, I got to get out of here because if I don't, I'll end up in jail. So I took off, got in my van, and I drove down to Massachusetts because I remembered that my cousin, that she and her husband lived in Massachusetts. And because I knew that there was a God, I said, maybe she can help me. So I went to Massachusetts. I ended up staying with her and her husband. Her husband's name was Buck. One day he uh, said, Gary, do you value our friendship? And I said, I sure do. And you're the closest thing I've got to a friend. And he said, do me a favor then read this book. So he gave me a book, and I started to read it. And I went back to him, and I said, what kind of book is this? It's it's about the same guy. And he said, just keep reading. And he had given me a New Testament. So I had read through Matthew and Mark, Luke, and I got to John. And when I got to the 14th chapter of John, it, it starts out by saying, let not your heart be troubled. And my heart had already been troubled. I was afraid of the anger that was inside of me, the guilt that I had uh, the anger, the, the pain, it was just eating away at me. The experiences that the home, my homecoming had provided for me were much worse than what Vietnam had done to me. And so I was just a troubled, troubled guy that was ready to explode. I said, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God? And I said, yes, I do. He said, believe also in me. I am the way, the truth, and the life. And it was Jesus speaking. And, and, and when I read that, I realized, I said, wow. Jesus is the God that I met in that hospital bed. And then in uh, the 
15th chapter, he said, you have not chosen me, but I have chosen you. And, and that stuck with me too. You've chosen me for a purpose? I just felt God saying, yes, Gary, I've got you chosen for a special purpose. So uh, that was July 2nd, 1972. I, uh, I prayed and became a Christian that night, three o'clock in the morning. I knew that God had forgiven me, and, but I just couldn't forgive myself. And I still, didn't, I still didn't have the ability to have a relationship with other people because I was afraid to let them in because I was afraid of my anger. I was afraid of the things that I had done. Um, I was afraid that if they saw me, they would reject me, much like what the people at, at uh, SUNY Brockport had done. And my thought was, you guys are calling me names, but I could call myself worse names because of how I feel about myself. So I, I decided that what I needed to do was to continue this journey and find out more about this God that I now knew was real. And so there was this little seminary up in uh, Lancaster, New Hampshire, up in the White Mountains. I decided I wanted to go up there and just learn about this God that I now knew personally. So I went there. One of the days that I could, I went out to the just took a ride because that's what I did many times when I just felt overwhelmed by uh, the, the way that I was feeling still. And I, I took a ride on Route 2 out of Lancaster, New Hampshire, and I found this little parking spot that's at Appalachian Mountain Trail. I started to hike the trail. Uh, all of a sudden, getting back into those mountains, into that nature, reminded me of being in Vietnam, and all of a sudden there was this peace that came over me. And I said, this is beautiful. This is where I want to stay. And so I ended up this making that my home. And what I would do is I would go into Lancaster, attend classes. After the classes, I would go back out into the mountains. And I remember when I, I, I remember when I found that, that sanctuary of being in the mountains, I made another prayer in September of 73. I said, God, you gave me my life back in Vietnam. I'm giving you my life back now. Whatever you want for my life, that's all I want, God. I made that prayer in September of 73. Two weeks later, I was notified that I was being awarded the Medal of Honor after I made that prayer. So here I am hiding in this cave because I was trying to forget about Vietnam. I wanted to just know about God and I felt that the best way I could heal was just to forget about Vietnam, thinking that if I could forget it, I would get better. And now I'm praying to God and God says, here, Gary, I'm gonna help you heal. I'm gonna give you a Medal of Honor. So I started thinking about the Medal of Honor, what it meant. I also started thinking about a saying that we had in Vietnam, that to really live, you must almost die. To those that fight for it, life has a meaning the protected will never know. I fought for my life in Vietnam. I almost died. I fought for my life in that cave as I was trying to reflect and to refocus and find a way of making Vietnam a part of my life, finding a way of making this Medal of Honor part of my life now. So I spent that year and a half in the cave trying to come to grips with those those two things that were now a part of my life. And people say, well, what brought you out of the cave? And actually what brought me out of the cave was is that there was a girl that I met in that, well, actually I didn't meet her. I went down to my post office box and there was this note in my box that said, hi, my name's Lolly. I've seen you around town. And I would get these notes in my post office box about two times a week or so. And then one day she put her picture in there and I said, wow, you're pretty, that's pretty cute. So I said, I'm going to find this girl. There was only 2,000 people in the town of Lancaster, and I was going to go in every door until I could find this girl. And one day I met her in a laundromat. We had one date, and I asked her to marry me. And she said, okay, I'll marry you, but you got to come out of the cave. And we've been married for 45 years. And I found out that forgetting 
isn't getting better. Getting better is finding someone who will come into your hurt, come into your caves, listen to you, support you. Maybe not understand everything that you went through, but that's okay because they accept you and support you without judgment. And in doing so, they give you a hope for tomorrow. They give you a reason to live. One of the things that's common among us that, that wear the medal is that um, we receive a medal for a battle, but a tougher battle begins when, when you wear it because now all of a sudden you're having to deal with, why me? I don't deserve this. I only did what I was trained to do. There are so many others who did greater things that should be here, that should receive this. Why me? What God helped me to understand is, is that, Gary, this medal is not about you. I've come to understand that the medal is not about me. It's not about any one person who did any one thing on any one day. But there is an honor, and the honor that comes with it is that the medal represents something that's greater than one person. It represents millions of men and women who love this country and who love others more than themselves. It represents the millions of acts, selfless acts, done by every man and woman who served this country. And the other honor that comes with it is that it, this medal, when people see it, there's a message that goes with it. The message of there's a, a different way to live your life. To really live, you must almost die. Maybe not die physically, but learn how to deny yourself, die to yourself, experience what it means to really live by caring for others more than yourself. That's the message of the Medal of Honor. And that's the message that has allowed me to be able to wear it. Uh, when I put that medal around my neck, there's no room for self anymore. Well, after I had received the Medal of Honor with President Nixon, I came back to my cave and I put the medal in my duffel bag and I never took the medal out again for seven years. I'd come back to Rochester married with my family because I was attending grad school. Some of the veterans in the area had heard that I had the Medal of Honor, and they asked me if I wanted would participate in this demonstration at, at the Liberty Pole, which was downtown Rochester, because the Iranian hostages had just been released. And many of us were, you know, we were glad and ecstatic that they were released, and we loved the reception and the welcome home that they received, but there was a part of us that said, wow, I've been held hostage ever since I returned from Vietnam, and nobody has ever welcomed me home. So we had this rally down there, and they asked me to speak. And I had this friend, that, um, Tom Cray, who was the director of a local veterans outreach center here in Rochester. And Tom had the unique ability of, of being able to look through the walls that all of us as veterans tried to put up to protect ourselves. And he could look through those walls and see something great. And he, he had the ability to, to help us pull that out, to work through all that guilt and that anger, and to be able to get in touch with some of the good things that we needed to build our life on. We couldn't build our life on anger and hate and guilt. And so Tom, on this day before we spoke, we were standing in the dais. He said, you know, Gary, you've got a special mission here. And I thought about that verse that said, you have not chosen me, Gary, I have chosen you. And he said, wear the Medal of Honor. And I said, I can't, Tom. And he said, quit being so selfish, Gary. It's not about you anyhow. He said, you're not wearing it for yourself. Wear it for us. And he reached in and he took the medal out of my pocket and gave it to me and I, I put it on. And that was the first time that I'd worn the Medal of Honor since President Nixon hung it around my neck in October of 73. And you've been listening to Medal of Honor recipient Gary Bykirk. And my goodness, what eloquence. His spiritual renewal, his rebirth, 
his bout with selfishness, self-doubt, and anger, and his walk in love with a partner for 45 years and going. A beautiful story, a story of pain and suffering and redemption. Gary Bykirk's story, here on Our American Stories. <laughs> 